0: This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Hi, everyone. This episode is a part of a long series about how communism in Russia impacted the American Christian Church. This episode can stand on its own, but when you're done, go back and start at the beginning of season three. The shipping container was not invented until 1956. Now, I know that's a strange way to start a story, but if you want to learn about an underappreciated invention that changed the world, look no further than the humble shipping container. You know, those big, long rectangles that cross the ocean on cargo ships. When they reach land, they are loaded onto trains or trucks without adapters or whatchamacallits. They're uniform. They have specific dimensions so they fit wherever you need them. Boats, trains, trucks, and really any kind of transportation. Think about how cool that is. I mean, no joke, my brother read a whole book about shipping containers. Before their invention and implementation, ships were unloaded by hand. You'd have to take everything out of a boat and load it onto a truck. And then everything out of a truck to load it onto a train. If there were, say, 400 bags of flour... Men had to load those bags onto the ship mm. by hand. <sighs> stack them, account for them, and then somewhere, maybe across the ocean, another group of men unloaded those bags of flour. Oh. One at a time. And on and on with every single item on the boat. See why shipping containers are so much better? Oh yeah. Yeah. These men, who had to pull every item off of a boat, were called longshoremen. Their work was dangerous, tedious, and with long hours. Then there was the way they were hired. Not by a company as an employee, but each morning the men went down to the docks and were lined up, chosen one by one. There was no guarantee that they would get picked, which opened the market for bribery. Imagine looking for work every single day. We take it for granted that we can get up in the morning and go to work knowing that our job will be there for us. They didn't have that luxury. And as anyone who has done manual labor knows, you can only get away with it for so long. Eventually, the human body breaks down. You need a safety net in case you hurt yourself or the ravages of old age become too much. These struggles bubbled and churned for decades. Little strikes broke out without enacting real change. And then came the Great Depression. And with it, Franklin Delano Roosevelt and the New Deal. A plan to pull the country from its quagmire. One piece of the New Deal, and there were many, was the National Industrial Recovery Act, or N.I.R.A. Section 7A of N.I.R.A. gave labor rights a new advantage. The right to organize and bargain collectively without interference from their employers. In May 1934, the longshoremen on the West Coast went on strike physically removing any scabs who crossed their picket lines. Shipping companies hired professionals who went around the country breaking strikes. They were met with fistfights and brass knuckles. The strike closed the West Coast. There are newsreel films of this era showing empty streets, closed stores, major U.S. cities reduced to ghost towns the Industrial Association of San Francisco hired a PR firm to spin the strike as a communist plot to disrupt American life. The tensions ratcheted even higher on July 5th, now known as Bloody Thursday, when police and vigilantes fired on the strikers, killing two men. By the end of the day, another 70 were injured. The violence encouraged the city's other 160 unions to join the strike in solidarity. 130,000 workers refused to work. It was there, amidst the strikes, that something happened under the radar. Yes, organized labor won a major and bloody victory by the end of July, but in wealthy circles, those frequented by industrialists, a movement was beginning. A prayer movement. One that would shape the country by tying capitalism to Christianity, changing the outward political reaction to faith for decades to come. You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause in the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Steeren, and this... Is Let me rewind just a little bit. Before the strikes, before the shutdown, a man named Abraham Veridi did his best to coordinate relief efforts on the West Coast. He was a Methodist clergyman, an immigrant who left Norway in 1905 to seek a better life in the States. In the 1920s, Veridi ran Goodwill Industries in Seattle what must have been a huge operation. But ask anyone who works with the poor for a long time, it sometimes grates on you, slowly. There are genuine needs, but those few who take advantage of the system start to loom larger and larger in your mind. In 1927, Verity said that Promiscuous charity pauperizes, and the average person seeking aid does not want to work for it. After rising in the ranks and being considered for a job in FDR's relief efforts, Verity had had enough. He resigned. Now, almost 50, he went looking for a new role in life. Just, as Seattle was embroiled in a massive labor strike that shut down the city. The longshoremen and other union members had bonded together and slowed down business. The wealthy elite of Seattle gathered together at the Pacific Union Club to lick their wounds and discuss their options. Vrede found himself leading prayer for these wealthy men. The strike and his time at Goodwill are key to understanding Verity. He'd seen what organized labor could do. It cost his wealthy friends money and slowed the economy, never mind the strife of the people working on the docks, and forget about the New Deal, legislation that Faridi denounced. He believed that the economy should be unregulated and that the poor should rely on the benevolence of wealthy people. An ideology that some people still hold today. The following year, Viridi had a chance encounter that shaped his life. A local developer named Walter Douglas stopped him and lamented that churches were simply not doing enough to stop the labor strikes. Here you have your churches and services and a merry-go-round of activities, but as far as any actual impact and strategy for turning the tad is concerned, you're not making a dent. In his mind, churches should end these strikes, denounce the shutdowns, get involved politically, which to me brings up questions of the role of the church in society. How much do we get involved and when should we focus people on Jesus? I'd love to discuss that, but we've got a long way to go. We'll get there eventually. The two men hatched a plan. Douglas would give Verritte offices in his building and money to run the operation. Work began immediately. And when I say immediately, I mean immediately. The two men marched to the offices of the president of the largest department store in the Northwest. And together, they drew up a list of wealthy men to invite to pray with them. Their first prayer meeting was at the Washington Athletic Club. Guests included people from railroad, gas, lumber, hardware, and candy corporations, and two future mayors of Seattle, political and corporate leaders. Strangely enough, only one of them belonged to a church. The prayer breakfast became a regular thing known as the city chapel. And as word spread, the meetings grew. Okay, so let's pause for just a moment and do a little gut check. Is there anything wrong with prayer meetings? I think most of us would say that there is not. What about wealthy people getting together to pray? I mean, does their financial status really make a difference? No, of course not. But there are hints there, clues that something sneaky could be coming of this. When you hear that people meeting for prayer are not Christians, but are industrialists looking to end their union troubles, doesn't that give you a little bit of pause? In Jesus's day, the religious leaders gave money in public. They prayed in public and showed off just how holy they were. This was Jesus's response. When you pray, You are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have the reward in full, but you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. I don't want to make a meal out of that passage. Just let it simmer a little bit as we go forward. How are we supposed to pray, humbly, not parading it in front of people? Pretty soon the city chapel, these prayer meetings, got involved in kingmaking. Their first foray into that happened at a retreat where conservative Arthur Langley found his financial support for his first mayoral bid for the city of Seattle. He would eventually become governor and was considered Eisenhower's running mate in 1952. That all started in a prayer retreat. The organization's growth in Seattle sparked businessmen in other cities to start their own prayer meetings aimed at corporate leaders. An oil man started one in Los Angeles. A An wool trader in Boston of got one going. business leaders in Chicago. There was prayer going on to be sure, but... Also, networking. Historian Kevin Cruz described these meetings as an important political rite of passage. I mean, makes sense, right? If there are business people and politicians meeting and you want to have influence, you're going to go where they are, whether you're religious or not. Eventually, Verritti made the natural progression to Washington, D.C., where the meetings went from local Makrimaks meeting together to national politicians, Republicans and Democrats, members of Congress, Supreme Court justices, business leaders, and the vice president. Faridi printed up a monthly program that guided these prayer meetings with scripture passages and discussion questions. All the while, Faridi made contacts across the board, some that you may know. J.C. Penney, the department store magnate, introduced him to Norman Vincent Peale. Longtime listeners may recognize that name. He's the guy who wrote the book, The Power of Positive Thinking, which encourages people to think and talk positively to bring about their desired outcomes. It's basically the precursor to the secret well before Oprah's book club. One of the people who would attend Norman Vincent Peale's church and hear his preaching on positive words about oneself was a little boy named Donald Trump. Freedy framed his movement simply as Christ or Communism. He believed the antidote to Communism, which was inherently atheistic according to Karl Marx, was Christianity. Collectivism and labor movements could be combated with capitalism and prayer. These little meetings, which started with just a few people, these gatherings of the wealthy and connected, We're about to go big. We'll continue our story after this commercial break. God is
1: a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform.
0: Enter Senator Frank Carlson. Carlson was one of Verity's closest friends in Congress. He was described by one person as like a sunburned Bela Lugosi, the actor famous for playing Dracula. He spoke out against the New Deal and Roosevelt as the destroyer of human rights and freedom. Senator Carlson was a member of these prayer breakfasts and decided to invite President-elect Dwight Eisenhower to their small gathering. Seems like a simple enough idea, right? Well, have you ever put together a party and nobody would get back to you? I don't know. I might be doing my hair that night. Until that popular person is going and then... Everyone wants to go. Wait, Becky's going to the party? I'm totally in. It was something like that. When people heard that Eisenhower would be attending, the prayer meeting got bigger. The only problem is that their usual meeting place, the Vandenberg Room in the Senate, couldn't fit the number of people who wanted to attend. So Senator Carlson cashed in a favor with Conrad Hilton so they could host it at one of Hilton's hotels for free. And so was born the National Prayer Breakfast. It's an important thread in this tapestry that we've been discussing this year. We're talking about how communism in Russia impacted the American Christian Church. And you can see it pretty clearly in the story of Abraham Faridi. The late 1800s and early 1900s in industrial parts of the world were all about labor. How would we treat workers? What should the working conditions and hours be? Should they be allowed to unionize? People like Verrides saw in the unions a sort of mini-communism because they took the role of the individual to bargain with their employer over their pay and collectivized it, pooled it, Collectivization was seen as one building block of communism, one little nudge closer to Joseph Stalin. And the New Deal was seen as a play by Roosevelt to gain more power for himself. If Faridi and his men could tie the interests of capitalists together with the ribbon of religion, they could fight creeping communism. It was meetings like this that allowed people to call this a Christian nation because our leadership was meeting together regularly to pray. Now, we can debate the validity of their espoused faith. I mean, really, we can. Obviously, there's a temptation to attend these things, whether you believe or not, because this is where the powerful are coming together. That is one way that communism in Russia impacted American Christianity. It sparked the creation of prayer meetings for the politically connected across the country. And in the process, it dangled the carrot of false piety in front of a lot of people. There is another more sinister underpinning as well, beyond the putting on of airs. freedy organized the efforts of these prayer groups as the National Council for Christian Leadership, or NCCL, and then an international version of that called the ICCL. It's a lot of acronyms, I know, but this organization is important there is a strain of Christianity that is very interested in leadership. I've seen this a lot while working in Christian films, publishing, and now the podcasting world. Leadership has been all the buzz for quite a while. Veridi's organization became very interested in making Christian leaders. I should say, male Christian leaders. After Verity's death, the organization was led by a man named Doug Coe. It's Co. who is the focus of the Netflix series, The Family, an expose on the now shadowy organization that owns homes near D.C. where young men are mentored to be leaders in the U.S. Not maybe what you and I would consider Christian leaders, but a strange pseudo-mixture of things involving studying only sections of the Bible and leadership itself as practiced by some really bad dudes. I mean, think of the bad guys you know, and the family is studying them. Supposedly, not for nefarious reasons, but for their leadership qualities. Let's hope that's true. The Netflix program, while not what I'd call a documentary, does point out some valuable issues within this slice of Christianity. Using religion to open politically connected doors. Preferential treatment of men and only a certain kind of man. A weird sort of insider market on growing their own kind of leader, king-making. In a country where we are supposed to be a government by the people for the people, this gives me a great deal of pause. Are the normal, work people of the nation really being represented if there is an inside track for certain well-connected men? How does that reflect back on Christianity when we create and endorse this kind of system. So where does that leave us? Did I really do a whole episode just to knock the National Prayer Breakfast? No. There's always the possibility for real ministry to be done too, but I think that it's crucial for us to understand the motives behind these actions. These prayer meetings were started to combat organized labor, and yes, it's a movement that is fraught with its own issues. If you don't believe me, research General Motors in the 1980s. But the labor movement was necessary in moving the country forward. We almost certainly would not have child labor laws, a 40-hour work week, safety standards, or the like, if it wasn't for the labor movement. But we also have to consider the downsides. Maybe it sounds like I'm a broken record, but when we market the U.S. as a Christian nation, The actions of the United States are then tied to Christianity itself. The national sins of the U.S. are easily used against us. Finally, we should call into question the real religious value of meetings like the National Prayer Breakfast. Remember the words of Jesus when he instructed his followers on how to pray. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. We sometimes allow ourselves to see these public displays of piety as evidence that our system is godly, when it's also evidence that at the core, there may be nothing of substance going on. Really quick, did you know that a lot of the US's recycling used to be shipped to China? It's true, because it was cheaper than dealing with it here. I know that sounds crazy. It ships something across the world for cheaper than sending it across the state. But that was the reality. Do you know what invention made that possible? Shipping containers. Chinese manufacturers sent us their goods in shipping containers and rather than send these things back empty, wasting a perfectly good trip across the ocean, we loaded up our scrap metal, plastic, and broken electronics to ship off to China. For a long time, that practice made it cheaper for us to ship our recycled goods across the ocean than it was to process it ourselves. My brother read a whole book on recycling too. figure. When we see a ship in port filled with containers, we might be tempted to think, wow, they're full of good stuff. Food, clothing, gadgets, goodies, endless possibilities. I think the same is true where we see public displays of piety. We want to believe that they herald good things, and they may. They could be a sign of really great stuff. Or they could be a sign that the trash needs to be taken out. Special thanks to everybody who gave me their voices for this episode, including Shay and Michelle Watson of The Pantry Podcast, Annie Quinnell of the Unstoppable Solo Mom podcast, and Tim and J.K. Winders of the Seek Go Create podcast. Much of the research for this week stemmed from the excellent book One Nation Undergone by Kevin Cruz. Mr. Cruz chose not to be on the show, but I still want to recommend his research. Other source material can be found on our website at trucepodcast.com. When you're there, you can listen to our complete archives and join our email list where you'll get access to our free MediaFast curriculum and curriculum for our Empire of the Game from a few weeks ago. There, you'll also find ways to donate to the show. Have you ever heard anything quite like this podcast before? I'm guessing no. It's mostly a one-man operation, and I'm working towards the goal of doing this full-time. Your donation of any amount can help me reach that goal. And donating via Patreon will give you access to our bonus interviews, episodes, and insider-only updates. Learn more at trucepodcast.com. Also, I've set the goal of reaching 1,000 downloads per episode by the end of the summer. We have to more than double the number of listeners to do that. So I need your help. Would you take out your phone and text or call somebody right now to let them know that you appreciate Truce? It would make a huge difference. Want to help even more? Leave the show a review on your podcasting app. We got this one in recently from TFE Tim. It reads, how did we get to where we are, spiritually and politically? Truce does a great job asking questions that are rarely asked in our modern culture. This podcast is a breath of fresh air in the stifling dogmatic culture that we now live in. Thanks for your kind words. Your reviews will help people find the show, so please go ahead and post one. And for my super nerdy friends out there, I mentioned that you might be interested in learning about the rise and fall of auto worker unions in the U.S. Again, super nerdy. There's a great book called Crash Course, the American Automobile Industry's Road to Bankruptcy and Bailout and Beyond by Paul Ingracia. I'd also love for you to check out my movies, Bringing Up Bobby in Between the Walls, and my ebook, Cradle Robber, which you can get on any of your ebook platforms. And it's super cheap, so why not? God willing, we'll be back in two weeks with more. I'm Chris Sterren, and this is Truce.